Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Gruel, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show is episode number 56, featuring my conversation with Danny DeVito. We discuss how Danny's charisma and passion took him from Asbury Park, New Jersey, to working as an actor, director, and producer for some of the most popular movies and television shows of the past five decades. Danny recalls the roles that have defined his career and the projects that have allowed him to shape lives. His story is a testament to the importance of charity, compassion, and generosity. And I hope our conversation will leave you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. When the Freedom Writers and I were approached to turn our book, The Freedom Writers Diary, into a feature film, we knew that we had to find collaborators in Hollywood who would do our story justice. They needed to have determination, a courageous spirit, and a heart big enough to fit our Freedom Writer family. Luckily, we found someone who embodied all of these traits. Today's guest, Danny DeVito. For those who don't know, Danny DeVito was a producer for the Freedom Writers feature film, and he played a pivotal role in bringing our story to the silver screen. However, Danny's story started well before production on our movie began. As an actor, Danny has embodied characters known by audiences of all ages. And as a director and producer, his films have remained timeless classics. Today, Danny stars as Frank Reynolds on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But many of you may remember him from Taxi to Twins, Batman Returns, The Lorax, Dumbo, or the particular fan favorite, Matilda. I was pleasantly surprised to learn just how ravenous Danny's fans can be, whether it be creating a shrine for him in a college campus bathroom or taking a cardboard cutout of Danny to their high school prom. Students from around the world have latched onto Danny as an icon of pop culture. But what many people do not get to see is the softer side of Danny. The Freedom Riders and I have been lucky enough to know Danny for the better part of two decades. And in that time, he has been an amazing ally for us. In 2007, when a Freedom Writer teacher from Indiana was removed from her classroom after teaching the Freedom Writer's Diary, Danny stepped in to help. His generous and heartfelt support for that talented teacher has always stuck with me as a defining moment in our friendship, and I hope that our podcast is able to capture what makes Danny DeVito so endearing. He is a man who came from humble beginnings and works every day to fight for folks from every walk of life. Here's my conversation with Danny DeVito, originally recorded as part of our Freedom Forum fundraiser on October 21st. My heart is going to leap out of my chest because our guest today is one of the reasons our little story was able to leave room 203 at Wilson High in Long Beach, California to the big screen, to the world. And that is because our guest today, Danny DeVito, was one of the executive producers of the Freedom Writers film. So he's family. And so this is gonna be like a family chat since none of us can see our family during COVID-19. We're gonna have a, a nice family chat tonight. So Danny, would you say hello to all hey. of these teachers in 70 countries? Hi hey, everybody, it's Danny. <laughs> I'm in California and I hope you're all well and safe and uh, you know, uh, taking care of yourselves. Well, I, I need to tell our listeners and our watchers that your dear friend, Tony Diaz, has said that you are much hipper 
than folks would imagine because you're like, you've got this COVID-19 down. You're on Zoom every day, All uh, chatting with friends and colleagues. So how, mm-hmm. how have you acclimated? I mean, the thing about it is it hit us like a ton of bricks, didn't it? It came out of, you know, out of the blue. It was uh, the beginning of March, I guess, when I first got wind of the whole thing, like everybody else. I, I don't remember the date, but I know that I've been safe, taking care of myself, doing everything Fauci had to say. You know, even though he was like, seemed like he was a little bit under wraps in the very beginning when he started talking about it. But I took it very seriously. Ba- basically, big time went into my computer. Now, this is how I've been communicating for the past uh, nine forever. months. Yeah, forever. <laughs> the part of forever. Like forever. You know, but I did take it very seriously. I didn't, you know, I started doing a lot of ordering out. Like, I went to the grocery store a couple of times in the very beginning masked up to the nines and and then just stopped going then i started just do a lot of takeout food and and i cook a lot of pasta that's big that's for italian Um, i think for those that know you myself included i think what's probably hard for you is you're such an empath and affectionate like when i see you i just want to give you a huge hug so i think it's probably the hardest and the strangest not everybody i think everybody's going through it you know where you you know, you miss, I mean, some people are more extreme than others where they've unfortunately lost loved ones uh, who they couldn't be with in, a, in, the, in the moments that they uh, were so precious, the, the last few. But, I mean, I do miss, uh, you know, being with people. It's like I, I'm fortunate that my kids live nearby and, and we, we get to see each other, you know, in a little family uh, get together every once in a while. But we've been very, very. The only thing is, you get an elbow hug, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, you know, and everybody's staying away from each other. And being Italian, you know, we, I mean, all you do is kiss each other. It's just like one of those things you hug and kiss all your relatives and your friends and everybody when they see each other. And now it's just like something that we've got to, right now anyway, until we can get a hold of it, be uh, be very. Uh, you know, restraint about that, you know, the, the whole thing. But yeah, fortunate because they were all got to see them. And a couple of friends have come like lately, you know, in the yard, that kind of thing, where you're just able to be, you know, masked up and six feet away from each other or whatever it is. Well, when the world is right, we we will hug. We'll get together. We'll do a lot of hugging and kissing. Okay. I would love that. Well, what I thought we would do tonight is everyone has had to reinvent themselves Mm -hmm. in in this pandemic. And so I wanted to talk about your career, how Mm -hmm. our worlds have intercepted, and how you and I are both trying to make the world a better place in our our own small Mm -hmm. ways. For you, sometimes it's a giant way. I've been dealing with a lot of students in the coronavirus, and mm-hmm. one of the things I loved when I was researching your past is growing up in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. There, it, it was the Asbury Park of Bruce Springsteen's days. I know, I know, he's a couple years younger it than. Was you. Actually, before Bruce Springsteen's days, <laughs> I, know, I, I left. Minus five years. I was like eighteen. I left um, Asbury to go to New York to to study acting and. Uh, 19 and he was just start he was you know just beginning at the time to play the various clubs and all the you know the, everybody knows the stone pony and all this history of bruce because he's born in freehold new jersey you know he's i'm born in asbury but you know his first album had to be called greetings from asbury yes 
because you can't call, you know, greetings from Freehold it didn't <laughs> have a nice ring to it. So <laughs> Well, I know that Asbar has been gentrified. It is it has changed over yeah. the years. Uh, it's a great place to grow up. It was like a shore town, Jersey Shore. Asbury's history is really interesting because if you look at Atlantic City, that was where the steel pier was, they called it years and years ago. They had big all the amusements and they had nightclubs and they had all kinds of this before my time, before I was born, you know, there was all kinds of, you know, when prohibition and there was like a big kind of like a very hot town. But to get to New York from Atlantic City was way, way too far. So Asbury Park is about midway on the shore. So if you were driving or you were making your way down to Atlantic City, the story was that that's the way Asbury really came up because it was a midway point. And then they, they, they got wind of the fact that people were doing that. It's a very beautiful area. There are little lakes all around and uh, down the shore there. The beach is beautiful. And it became like a real jewel on the Jersey Shore. And that's how it came up. Then my father was born in Brooklyn. My grandparents are all from Italy. But my, my mother's father also came from Italy. He went down the Jersey Shore. Down there, there was a big department store at Asbury that he was a tailor. So he had a little tailor shop in Asbury, but he also went, worked in this big department store where they did suits for all the, you know, the uh, hoi polloi or whatever. And he was a fine tailor. And so my father came down in the thirties and that's when he met my mom who was born down there in Asbury. Later on, she had five kids and uh, I was the last one. <laughs> you know. I, I, I appreciate that you you went backwards because I think that when I think about you you're all about roots and family when I met you Jersey Films was your mm-hmm. production company mm-hmm. so you're always giving a shout out to your roots and your friendships are long lasting you know when, yes. when I think about all the television shows and movies that you have worked on for years. Mm-hmm. Those are your longest friendships. So I, I'd love to kind of explore that. Sure. And I, I love, I will keep going back to your roots because I think for the freedom writers, it's, it's all about our roots and, yeah. and also family. So I think that's why we're a perfect fit. One of the first movies that you did was actually apprising a role that you had done off Broadway martini in my favorite book i read in college one flew over the cuckoo's nest make the bets what's this make the bets it's a dime martini i bet a nickel dime's the limit martini i bet a dime this is not a dime martini this is a dime. If you break it in half, you don't get two nickels. You get shit. Try and smoke it. You understand? Yes. Understand. And what was that like to reprise that role that you'd done in a play right. in a major motion picture? Yeah. Well, I was really lucky to get the part. First of all, off-Broadway play was done in like, I think it was 1970, 71. 70-ish. Like what happened to that play, which was written by Dale Wasserman, and it was uh, from Ken Kesey's book. The book was purchased years ago 
by Kirk Douglas. But in the 60s, he commissioned Dale Wasserman to write the play. The play was done on Broadway with Kirk Douglas playing McMurphy on Broadway. And But it was before its time, basically, because it wasn't well received. They didn't feel like it was true or right. Something was not clicking. And for a while, it just sat dormant. Then the book started catching on. And all the college students started reading the book and started getting into Kesey's work. And then in uh, around 1969, 70, a couple guys in San Francisco revitalized the Dale Wasserman play. Uh, Rudy Golan and Lee Sankiewicz, they did this in North. And it was a hit with all young young people came see flocked to see the play. And then they brought it to uh, New York. And, and I was uh, just... It was a, a win, like a real fluke, you know. The way things happen in life, are you know, you you never know when that opportunity is going to come for you, especially as an actor or writer. I mean, whatever. Somebody said to me, they're casting this play up on Seventy Second Street. They're just doing the casting up there, and they can't find one part. This one part, everything was cast except for this one role. And I went up. I had no idea. I hadn't read the book. I had no idea what was going on except that Martini was, you know, I read this script as part of the script and, and I, I started uh, playing around with it and I got the part. I was very fortunate to get the role. And then that was off Broadway. We ran for a while and I was able to create with Kesey's book, work on the part, really details, little things, idiosyncrasy, little movements, thing, things that Martini did that I felt like all had justifiable, you know, they were all motivations, all causes and effect in his head, what was going on. And then when they decided to make the movie, you know, again, I got I very fortunate to meet Milos and, and also Michael Douglas was the producer of that. And we had known each other in the theater. Uh, we met at the Eugene O'Neill Foundation up in Connecticut uh, doing summer theater. So all good stuff, but it's very, you know, kind of when things really, you know, you bump into something and you don't know what it is. Accidentally on purpose. Yeah. 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 It was like really a, it's kind of like a really cool thing. Well, I I brought that up because that film has really hit a soft spot for freedom writers and freedom writer teachers, because we live in that lane of, of talking about mental health parity and, trying to get rid of stigmas and stereotypes. And I think with with COVID and the pandemic, that's something that's really dear to us is is looking at how oftentimes people are stigmatized or or vilified. And I think your film did such a phenomenal job of allowing something that's often in the corners and in the shadows into our homes, to our dinner tables, to have those discussions. So it's, it's a film that has had a resurgence, I think, during the pandemic. And and having those really incredible conversations, I think, are really important. Yeah. After I I read the book, it was a terrific book. The play was really well done, you know, well written. And that was like a testament to, like, the way he put it together, the way Dale Wasserman put that together, because I understand what you're saying about illuminating, you know, shining a light on on people who are in certain situations and uh, making them more accessible and in the conversation but uh, with the with the cuckoo's nest one of the things i noticed i've done a lot of theater and you know there's sometimes there's good nights and sometimes you you know the you're just off just you know you can everybody feels it 
your audience sometimes mm-hmm. less, but you you know you can tell with that play, it was foolproof. Mm. You 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 could we could be off everybody in you know backstage you go ah, it was a kind of a weird night i felt really weird but the audience reaction to that play when in circumstances what happened in the play i don't i don't want to spoil for anybody but <laughs> uh, but that always got like you know just touched everybody so mm-hmm. that relationship of uh, uh, the chief and and randall mcmurphy mm-hmm. always like you know just totally wrenched into the hearts and minds of the audience. I know that your your co-star, Jack Nicholson. Also from New Jersey. Amazing. Born like in the same hospital. We didn't know each other. Oh, it was crazy. like a really cool thing because my my family, my sister is a hairdresser. So my, I did that too. I worked with her, but that's a whole other story. But the idea is that his family, that he's had, you know, his mom and his sister and, you know, people in his family were in the, in the also in the hair trade and uh, the business they did hair they all knew each other wow so the small I, small world <laughs> yeah when i was a kid i used to hear he's a little bit older than i am but i used to hear about this guy this very handsome guy who went to california to become an actor and then as things happen like i say you know like you never know well the next thing you know we'll bump we're in salem oregon in the and doing a movie together, you know how family and friends are when you get apart. Anytime you're in anything, they, the the phones light up. That the Jersey Shore lit up when the two of us worked together <laughs> back in, in 1975. I love it. Before whatever it was, yeah. Kind of fun tidbit is after I had met Richard Lagravenes, who was working with you, and this idea of a teacher in a classroom was going to become a film. I was terrified. Not something that I'm used to, or, or it's not normal to me. My father, on the other hand, was giddy, and I we would. He was my best friend. And I would literally get a call every day, Danny. My dad would call and it would go like this. Um, so I was thinking that maybe Jack Nicholson should play me in the film. And I'd say, Dad, we don't have that kind of budget. It's not that kind of film. The very next day, the phone would ring and my dad would say, um, I think that Robert Redford should play me. And it was literally the A-list, the most yeah, handsome yeah. Uh, actors, uh, all Academy Award winners. And yeah, good. Uh, good for him. Good for yeah. Tragically, though, my dad passed away before the film was a reality. So it's it's hard because there's this beautiful homage to hmm. my character and and my father in the film, but it's it's very difficult because my dad never got to actually see cool. the film. So he got to see it, but he got to experience the, wow. the joy Absolutely. of what you do and and everything and and celebrate that and that's Absolutely. that's really important and like right now we'll vibe it up to him see wherever he is oh, okay. we'll I'm, I'm wearing the pearls he gave me in his honor so um and that's you know it's it's weird because I, I read Ken Kesey in, in college I'm an English major and I I know my tenses but I I find that when I talk about my dad to students I always talk about my dad as an is I'm, I'm yeah. not ready to refer to him as a was. Yeah. So no, he's he, very he, much a part of this right now. It's like it, it, the thing about, you know, like my parents are gone and my, I lost two sisters a couple a year or two ago. And the the great thing about the the where you keep them 
they're always there, right, right here, buzzing around. I feel like they're elevated. They're with me. Whenever I think of them, they're always, you know, present. They're very much present. So I wish I could give you a hug. I wish I could uh, give them a hug. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to cash that in when COVID is over. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think one of the beautiful things that Freedom Airs were able to help me is, you know, they had been grieving of loss and they came up with this buzz phrase of, you know, family is what we make and family is what we choose. And to this very day, Danny, my family is those beautiful Freedom Riders. Um, we are still very much a part of each other's lives. There's a group of about uh, two dozen of them going back to college again as a cohort. So we are, we are very oh, connected. Great. And that is great. That is great. The most beautiful thing is that when, when the pandemic hit, there was this thought that kids are really suffering. Yes. There's going to be a divide economically and digitally. And how do we do something? I wanted to show you something that I'm really proud of. We okay. came up with all of these themes that we thought would be relevant. And one of the young men that I brought to your house when we had dinner while they were making the movie. Tony's theme was hope. So can I show you this sweet oh, little, it's like a minute. Um, it's beautiful though. And this is Tony talking yeah. about being able to overcome adversity. Hope is the promise that tomorrow might be a little better than today. I have a saying uh, that's kind of been my mantra since I was 16, alive at midnight. Having depression and having the life that I've had Sometimes you have really bad days, and I would always tell myself, just be alive at midnight. Just stay alive until midnight, because at 12.01, it's tomorrow. And tomorrow has the hope and the possibility that it might be a better day. It might still suck, but at least there's that, that hope that it might be okay. That's what hope means to me. That's terrific. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Well, you know, it was really interesting that my mother used to say, which means it never gets dark in the midnight. Mm. And so I think it's like what Tony said really hit me. I, I think it was really beautiful. And uh, so I find myself every day, we, we are working with kids and I sit at my computer like everyone and I just weep because the Freedom Writers bear their soul. It allows others to bear witness. And then it gets yeah. kids the courage to write as well. And, yeah. and write stories and to think about their own happy ending, if they can envision that. So I think that what's amazing is most people think of you as comedic, mm-hmm. but there's this tender side of you that, that when I see you, I get, a, I get a little emotional because I know you are that amazing father mm-hmm. and that loving family men. And so the kinds of films that you gravitate to are all over the map from, from comedies mm-hmm. to drama, always sunny in Philadelphia is going to be starting its 15th season, which I think is the longest running comedic mm-hmm. show on television, which is amazing. So how do you choose what's the next show, well, the next uh, production? Yeah. It's something that I've been blessed with the opportunity to uh, like when taxi came along, I'd already done Cuckoo's Nest. That was a gift as well. Like, uh, they're all like little gems. I bumped into Taxi like in a kind of an odd way as well. And uh, same thing, you know, like just a chance. Somebody said, do this, do that. And you go out and you put your best foot forward or whatever you try to do to, you know, and you have to be active about it. You have to go out. You have to make that commitment and take that step off of that 
ledge into the abyss. And I feel like that I've always had that thing where uh, I went with how I felt first, what, what hit me in the, my gut. Like I'll read a script and, you know, okay, you're an actor, you're always looking for work. But what chooses you to like direct a movie, throw mama, or on the other hand, Matilda, and on the other hand, War of the Roses. So it's like when you read something that somebody's written, like War of the Roses, I was working with Michael Leeson. We were pitching, like sitting in a room, just pitching some idea he had, trying to break a story. And we were getting frustrated. We were working on like a week or so, and we, we we had good times together. I said one day, let's, let's get out of here. Let's go to a restaurant. You drive, I'll, I'll buy lunch, and we'll mix it up a little bit. I got in the car, and his car was cluttered, just full of, like, all kinds of, like, stuff. I said, Michael, this is like, he had a real old car. It was really nice. But he had paper in there and things, pens and <laughs> stuff. It was just like, you couldn't believe it. And I had something on my under my foot. I didn't know what it was. It was just kicking it. So I picked it up, and it was a screenplay, and my footprint was on it. <laughs> and I read it. I said, The War of the Roses. I said, Michael, didn't you guys make this movie? I, I might have missed it. Did You wrote this, right? He said, yeah, yeah, I wrote it. It was a Warren Adler's book, and I adapted it. And I said, you mind if I take it away? I'm going away this weekend. And I took it away and I read it and I loved it so much that, you know, okay, so I've done like comedies and this and that and the other. This is a, 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 a com comedy about like, you know, two people who, you know, couldn't live together anymore. So far it was a pretty normal divorce scenario. A few bruises, some broken dishes, a pissed on fish. But I think you should have a drink for this next part. There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? My kids brought in the Roald Dahl's book, uh, Matilda. Uh, we were reading picture books up until then. They were like, you know, just starting to read chapter books at night. We sit and, you know, go from chapter to chapter. And they, they brought Matilda in. 20 years ago, we could turn the numbers back by hand. But here, take my hat. But the feds like to test the ingenuity of the American businessman. Two-directional drill. You run it backwards, the numbers go down. Watch your speedometer. Cool. Me? Yeah. Daddy, you're a crook. What? This is illegal. Yeah, keep drilling. Do you make money? Do you have a job? No, but don't people need good cars? Can't you sell good cars, Dad? Listen, you little wiseacre. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know, and then later on, I got turned on to Roald Dahl, and I read a lot of his stuff. And but Matilda, you starred in it, you directed it, and I'm, you produced it. Yeah. I mean, it was really your yeah, But, but I, I found it because it wasn't like I went out and said, oh, I'm going to go find a, a really cool kids movie now and make it. My kids brought it in, and, and we read it, and I said, oh, my 
maybe make a damn good movie. And there were people thinking about it. It wasn't like I was the first one to have the idea to make it because, you know, Roald Dahl is Roald Dahl. He's like amazing, amazing writer. And so I go with the gut. If I feel like that, then after a while, you know, you have to think about it a little bit. <laughs> well, I love that you span every generation as we were preparing for you to be with us today. I meet with pilot students. I have a middle school program and a high school program and a college program. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to invite all the kids to watch tonight. And so we wanted to find Danny DeVito films and television that was age appropriate for our different audiences. So we love the fact that this is this is from our peanut gallery. We love the fact that you were the voice in the Lorax. I'm, I'm the Lorax, guardian of the forest. I speak for the trees. That was a big crowd pleaser with the middle school kids. We loved that you were um, with your friend James Brooks the voice of Homer Simpson's half-brother in The Simpsons. They love that. Hello in there. Homer? Herb? You You look just like... Except except you got a little more. And a little little less. God, I feel feel so... Homer! Welcome to my home, brother. Holy moly, the bastard's rich. We love that you, they all, everybody wanted to get a little piece of Dumbo and Matilda. And we had to end our movie montage with Always Sunny. We had to find a, a an age-specific Always Sunny. Your mother is dead. <laughs> yeah, right. Nice try. Very funny, Frank. I'm serious this time. She had a botched neck lift. She's as dead as disco. <laughs> Who wants champagne? But in the midst of one of these zooms, it was hysterical. A middle school girl runs out of the camera range for a moment, comes back, and she has a Danny DeVito pillow. I, I don't know if you realize that your face is on a pillow in some little girl's house in Los Angeles. Very honored to be there. <laughs> and we also were sent a, apparently there's a Danny DeVito shrine Mm-hmm. And um, in some bathroom, in a nefarious place. Yeah, have I, you I, seen the shrine? I've heard about that. <laughs> I've not, I've not visited, but I've, I've, I've heard about it. It's behind a cabinet. Uh, there was a big hole in the wall, and they, yeah, they have to, uh, they, they have, have to literally take a part of the wall out. And yeah. it was, um, it was, it was a it's really, uh, it's really very flattering. I love it. I, I love all the various things. There was a cardboard cutout that somebody took once to a prom that was really sweet i thought and and, lots of lots of cool stuff you know uh various uh rum ham things and tattoos and whatever it's really really good i'm 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 really pleased to make my fans make me feel good they do have your back and we told all these wonderful kids this week we want you to come and watch danny but also bring your parents there so what's exciting is we got some some wonderful questions from some of their parents and some teachers. And one of our teachers and his son, uh, he and his husband were recently married. And their beautiful son has been really inspired by the social protest. And his father wanted us to know that he was a social worker before. He Mm. watched Renaissance Man. Mm. And because of your film, he decided to be a teacher. And he's never looked back. Oh, that is my dear teacher friend, Manuel. Penny, Penny Marshall directed that. 
Amazing. So you've always had a soft spot for, for doing good. When, when you choose projects where you can pay it forward, um, what does that feel like for you as an actor, director, producer, who then can well, pay it forward for a cause? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good feeling to have a reason. Like, for instance, in the early days, I did Sesame Street because I used to sit there with my kids and watch Sesame Street in the morning with a bowl of cereal. And then Lucy, my old, my first-born daughter, my oldest kid, she was into My Little Pony. So I had the opportunity to do a voice in a movie about My Little Pony. So it's really cool like when you can do something like that. When a Dr. Seuss project comes along, I mean, how are you going to not run to go do that? I have a good story about that. Usually in, in the movies, uh, there's a person who always does your voice, say, in Italian, when the movie's shown in Italy or in you know Germany or in France. And so with the Lorax, I have a friend who's born in Germany. And I, I said, what do you think it would be like? If I, you think I could learn this and if you wrote it out for me phonetically and we did it all, like if I could make sense of it and I tried it. I did the Lorax in two different kinds of Spanish. I did it in Russian. I did it in German and Italian. I was lucky enough to go to the Russian premiere, Moscow, and actually see part of the movie. I didn't stay for the whole movie. I watched it with Russian fans. Wow. With me speaking, and they tell me I have an accent. There would be times when I was doing one of them. Doesn't matter. Any of the, you know, I don't speak, I speak a little Italian, but that was it. But I would take a break in the middle of it and, and say, you know, Danny, what are you doing? Would you? It's like climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> you, these poor people are going to have to listen to you, <laughs> your language. I think that was one of the the fun things Freedom Riders discovered. We've we've been to all fifty states and about two dozen countries, and how Freedom Riders has been dubbed in multiple languages. And a group of Freedom Riders went to the Middle East, and we were in Israel, and then we went into the Palestinian territories. And there was this beautiful Palestinian girl. She had a bootleg copy of the film and she had seen it 27 times and she knew every single word of the film. And I just love that, that, that films and television can go into every corner and every continent. It it makes you feel good that, uh, you know, you have an effect, some kind of like smile you could bring to somebody's face. It's what I loved about the movies when I was a kid. I go into that, dark room and you know just everything would just dissolve and whatever i and i was very i had very eclectic i'd go every week in asbury movie would change on a wednesday and then you know they'd move it around we had a couple movie theaters in town and it was a very fortunate thing and we also had a place that showed international titles too you know you got to see DeSica and you got to see bergman and you got to see antonioni and you you know it was a it was really a, a gift down the shore. Can you imagine in this little one mile square town on the Jersey shore, all these movies came Jerry Lewis or, or whether they were Peter Lorre, Humphrey Bogart, or, you know, wh- whether they were romantic, whatever they were. And my sisters also were very instrumental and they were older and they took me around, dragged me to see if there was a movie star coming to the shore. I, you know, they were just like crazy. They dragged me around take a bus downtown and see if they could get John Derrick, somebody like that. But I, I love that about you. You've not lost that element. And I think that's why 
so many of the kids we're working with now are excited to meet you. In their eyes, you're big time, but you never forgot that kid from Jersey. I, I think that's so indicative of who you are and, and the, the friendships that you keep. I know that you and Tony Danza, who's a, a dear friend of the Freedom Rider family, yeah. um, met in 1978. That information will cost you another buck. Here's another buck. He didn't say nothing. And just today he said, I love him. He's the man and I miss him. Yeah, yeah, Tony. Very important. That's the other great thing about it. If you can keep that, the entire taxi cast is very, very close. We've done this a couple of times during the pandemic, COVID nightmare, where we, we have little get-togethers like for an afternoon and wow. just chat, chat. So you yes. saw something in us mm-hmm. that maybe we didn't even see in ourselves and got a green light to have a movie made with dignity. And during this pandemic, it was like trendy, you know, it was, and and kids were watching it. And your darling friend, about six weeks ago, Tony, on a Sunday, Tony Danza sent me a text and he said, E, the New York Times just ran a story about Breonna Taylor. And the last thing that Breonna Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, did was watch the Freedom Rider movie. I I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. So suddenly I get this text rush out and by the New York Times. And sure enough, it's been surreal knowing that, that there's, you know, that we're, we're in people's homes on the best of times hmm. and for Brianna Taylor under the worst of times. And one of the Freedom Riders, Narada, sent me the, the body cam from that night. Oh and it's so surreal, Danny. They walk into Brianna Taylor's yeah. bedroom. I think I and our that. film, our film was on her television. Why did you see that? It's oh, just, oh, it's surreal, you know, and, and it's this very joyous scene. So I, I tell you that because whenever hmm. Freedom Writers have had a pause where things aren't right, we've been able to reach out to you. And I want to share with the audience something that you did that was amazing. You know, when our, when our book first came out, it was not censored and it was, you know, has taboos and bad words and that's why kids love it. And there was a group in Michigan, the grand dragon of the KKK himself, stormed into a school in Hell, Michigan and removed our book from the hands of teenagers. Sent the book to the FBI and said that it was pornography. And it was this group of kids who wrote to us like a message in a bottle and we went to Michigan. And I think about Gretchen Whitmer, their their governor now, who's had, you know, this threat on her life and these crazy mm-hmm. white supremacists mm-hmm. who who wanted to ban our book all those years ago and, and how it still often gets banned. What we found out though is the best way to get a kid to read a book is to try to ban it apparently. But there was a teacher, this is where you come in. There was a teacher that had come to our institute from Indiana, outside of Indianapolis. She got fired up. We took her to Paramount Studios to see the film at the Sherry Lansing Theater. And she went home and had a fundraiser and she raised money for every single one of her students to get their own copy of the Freedom Writers Diary. And a very conservative school board member stormed into their class and took the books away from the kids. 
And as you remember, it became a, a, a court case. It was in Newsweek, it was on CNN. And I reached out to you and you donated money directly to her to fight the good fight. She lost her job over our book and you as an advocate donated for her dignity and for her respect. And she was reinstated. And I don't know if you know what that does to a teacher to know that Danny DeVito paid my rent, put food on my table, allowed me to, to fight a good fight because we don't believe in censorship or banning books. So you became this like superhero to us because you took the time to say, I want to do something for her. And I don't even know if you understand how much that meant to me and to the Freedom Riders and all the teachers we serve. Thank you for that. Well, again, good graces showered down on me when I am given the opportunity. Mm. So what I'd love for you to do is for those kids who are watching, mm -hmm. excited that you might know their name, a Nevaeh, beautiful Nevaeh. She breaks my heart every day. Um, and she's a beautiful girl. And this year we get to be her holiday, her first holiday where she gets something new, something that's hers. Uh, we told her we're gonna be her Santa. So if Nevaeh is watching, or sweet little Howard is watching, or any of these cute kids who get some time, some talent and technology. You could have been that kid years ago. What would you tell them about persevering? Well, I mean, I, I think that applying yourself from being positive and being considerate, and it's best when you care for others. It's best you've got to care for yourself. <laughs> you know, you have to care for yourself as well. But it's like always good. It's always good to respect other people and embrace them as your brother and sister, because that's the way we're going to get through everything. That's the way we're going to make it and make this world. It is a beautiful place. If you look around, you know, there are a lot of crazy things that go on. But, you know, with each other, kindness, kindness is big. Danny, I... I'd love to share a little anecdote. I flew back to Indiana to go directly to that court case. And it was surreal. There's like a judge and a jury. And there was this boy waiting outside. I think he was going to be one of the witnesses. And his hair was kind of sticking up. And I wanted to wet my hand and like put his hair down. And he was one of her students. And he's holding on to this book like it is the most prized possession. And he gets in the witness stand and they're badgering this poor kid about why he did not give his book back when it was demanded. And I swear to God, he opens the book and on the front cover, he had just written his name. He had written his name in the book and he said, because it's mine, because it's mine. Look, my name is right there. And then he said, I've never had a book before. And I think about that when you give, even if it's just a book or it's as you did with Connie, you gave her her livelihood and her ability to continue to teach. That boy was so brave to sit in front of all of those adults and be defiant and not give up his book because it was mine. I mean, you know that you're special because you're giving 
always, and all the teachers out there who are giving, because that's needed. And all the kids, too. The kids have to know this, that you can give, too. You can give back. You can help a friend. You can help somebody else. That's the whole idea about giving back, paying it forward, whatever you want to call it. It's all about, like, being, you know, compassionate, kind to each other, helping everybody along. You always hear that story about somebody helping somebody do something. You know, that's what you can do. You're you're empowered to do that. You can do that. I'm so grateful to our guest, Danny DeVito, for sharing with us a message of peace, understanding, and empathy. My dear listeners, may each of us strive to embody humility in times of success. May we help give voice to the voiceless. And in honor of our guest, Danny DeVito, may we all find ways to give back to communities in times of need. That concludes our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. To view the full-length interview of Danny DeVito, originally recorded on October 21st, or to donate to the Freedom Writers Foundation, please click the link in this episode's show notes. Once again, I'm your host, Aaron Gruwell. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Martin-Hall and Rob Falk, with production assistant by Brendan Falk. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told.